0: Hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen extended edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I'm so pleased to present another installment in the series of talks gleaned from the Psychedelic Integration Conference, which occurred at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California in the spring of 2019. Today's episode focuses on Rick Doblin, a man who's arguably done more to legitimize psychedelics and their purpose in modern society than anyone else. Rick is the founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. His stated professional goal is to help develop legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics. He's been a tireless proponent of the cause for more than 30 years, with a level of dedication and intellectual sophistication that verges on the unbelievable. I interviewed Rick immediately before the Psychedelic Integration Conference began, which, I have to mention, it was no small feat, because everyone wanted to talk to Rick, and he was more than happy to engage with them. And this episode is a blend of the highlights from our talk and the various panel discussions in which Rick participated over the week. My hope in listening to this episode is that you'll be able to gain a clearer understanding of the historical trajectory of maps, as well as the legal narrative that surrounds psychedelics and MDMA in particular. In addition, you'll learn about Rick's personal history with the Esalen Institute, which he credits as the incubator for many of his personal visions, including the creation of maps. You'll also learn about the patient populations that Rick aims to treat, in particular veterans suffering from PTSD, and what the future holds for clinical trials. So with no further ado, the patron saint of MDMA, Mr. Rick Doblin. I'm
1: running a psychedelic nonprofit pharmaceutical company um, and I'm also trying to integrate psychedelics into our culture, not just in medicine, not just in religion,
0: but as a fundamental human right for people to explore their own consciousness. Wow. That's a deep, ambitious, you know, beautiful way to describe what you do. I thought it might be interesting to touch upon the role of, of Esalen. You're speaking about yeah. culture. So let's, let's talk about the role that Esalen had for you as a young man in your development.
1: Okay. Well, it starts um, in 1972. I um, had taken a lot of LSD at college, I was just 18 years old, and I was having a difficult time integrating all my experiences, but I felt that it was really important that I continue with these experiences. So I went to the guidance counselor and I said, I need help with my tripping. And the guidance counselor was like, oh, okay, that's legitimate for sure. And he handed me a manuscript copy of Realms of the Human Unconscious by Stan Grof to read. And it was reading that book that changed my life, that that really helped me see that here was science looking religion and spirituality with this fundamental reality check of therapy. Is it actually helping people get better? So it it felt like here was everything that I was interested in because the spirituality, the unit of experience has profound political implications. So I wrote Stan a letter and he actually wrote me back. He was just leaving um, Johns Hopkins at that time, around that time. And He said that he was offering um, a workshop out here in California with Joan Halifax. It was one week after they got married at a place called the Man Ranch. So I um, took the workshop with Stan uh, and Joan, and it was very inspiring. Then I did a month-long encounter group in the mountains of California. And then I did a three-week primal therapy intensive where I would be uh, by myself all day, a night except for one hour or so that I would get out every day to be in a soundproof padded room and scream and stuff. And the only book I could have was a book of my dreams. I tried everything that I could imagine that, that would accelerate my development. And I had the, the delusion, the hope that the more drugs you take, the faster you evolve. And it, it didn't turn out that way. I felt really scrambled at the end of it. These were the most extreme things I could do, extreme or powerful or profound. And, and I wasn't happy where I was at the end. So I went back home and I ended up thinking for a couple months and then I realized that I was unbalanced. I should get grounded and I could do that by building things in the world. So I got into construction for 10 years and all of that was during this period of tripping every now and again, reading all the books about psychedelics, but not knowing any of the people in psychedelics. And then after 10 years of that, and building houses, building a construction company, I felt I was ready to go back to college. Just as I was ready in in the summer of um, 82, I realized that Stan Groff was offering a workshop at Esalen. And as soon as I was here, I just fell in love with the place, and I thought, what a great opportunity to work with Stan. And then I realized that he was doing a month-long workshop called The Mystical Quest in September of 82, but it was full. And so I signed up on the waiting list, and, and I was like... 10 years, I dropped out of college. I went back to the same college and now I don't want to be there. I want to be at Esalen. I want to be with Stan. And what I was going to do my first semester was develop the curriculum to become a psychedelic psychotherapist. And so as it turned out, a spot opened up and I became a work scholar working for Stan. It was just fantastic. And in the middle of that workshop, uh, this woman named Debbie Harlow came and she wasn't part of the month long, but she was uh, selling MDMA. And so she, which was called Adam as the tool for underground psychedelic therapy. And I saw a couple of people sitting around a circle talking to each other. And she said, it helps you feel love. It helps you talk to people, helps you accept yourself. And I was like, well, I love, I feel love. I'm in love. I I feel I can talk to people. And how profound can it be if you have a bunch of people that are just sitting around talking? You take a bunch of LSD, you can't talk. So what is this about? And so I was foolish enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. (laughs) MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck Pharmaceutical Company. They didn't know what they had at all. Um, it was during right before World War One. They actually uh, didn't do anything with it for 15 years. Their patent was starting to expire and they tested it in a bunch of animals. And the animals uh, said, oh, I love this oxytocin release. <laughs> I love it. No, they, the animals didn't say anything. And they, it just seemed like uh, there was nothing to it. And so they they abandoned the drug. The next time we hear about it, is um, 1953, and it's the Army Chemical Warfare Service. And they're starting to look at mind control drugs. And they um, looked at eight drugs, again, toxicity studies in animals. And they went from mescaline on one side to methamphetamine on the other. And so chemically, MDMA is kind of halfway between mescaline and methamphetamine. And that's a really good way to think about it in terms of what it does. So it's got the stimulant properties of methamphetamine, but it doesn't make you jittery. It has the opening mind-manifesting properties of mescaline, but it's not ego-dissolving. It's kind of halfway in between these drugs. So for whatever reasons, the military decided that this drug wasn't particularly interesting either, and they abandoned it. And then it was 1959, Merck did more studies in animals, yet again found that there was nothing interesting in it and abandon it. And so MDMA is, is firmly 100% in the public domain. Then what happened was a drug in the 60s was developed called MDA. Um, it was, uh, it's a wonderful drug. Um, it was called the miracle drug of America. It's methylene dioxyamphetamine. MDMA is methylene methamphetamine. So MDA was very popular during the 60s. And it's, it's like an LSD-MDMA combination in a way. Psychedelics got wrapped up in the counterculture, got wrapped up in the anti-war movement and environmental movement, all sorts of things. And there's massive backlash. We've heard about that from Nixon. And so once the Controlled Substances Act came down in 1970 and all these different drugs were criminalized, chemists were starting to look at how do we modify these drugs that we know about and modify them so that there are new, unique drugs that would be legal. Right now, so there's a, a bill called the Analog Bill. So if you have a drug that's similar in structure or effect to a drug that's already illegal, it's supposed to be illegal too. But at that time, the DEA had to say, this particular drug is illegal. And if you tinker with it a little bit, then it's legal. So MDMA was independently rediscovered. Um, actually, it was a graduate student of Sasha that told him to check into MDMA. And he made it, and then he took it. Um, he had this terrific program where he had 12 people that he would develop drugs first, then he and his wife Anne would try them. And then if they thought they had potential, they would circulate it to this small group of 12 people to try to get different people's attitudes on how this drug was like, and if they thought it had potential. And then if it did have potential, then it would go to Leo Zeff. Um, Leo was uh, a clinical psych PhD. He had done a lot of work with um, LSD and other psychedelics, also Ibogaine. He really helped introduce Ibogaine uh, with Claudio Naranjo here into the US. Um, Leo was a tremendous uh, teacher of many, many therapists and psychiatrists. And so once Leo got this drug, he was about to retire. And he decided this drug has so much potential that he came out of retirement. He taught um, many hundred or so therapists and psychologists how to work with it. And from the middle 70s to the early um, 80s, roughly half a million doses of MDMA under the code name ADAM were distributed through these circles. And none of that came to the attention of the police. These are done in indoor settings, not in recreational settings, for personal growth, for therapy. And several of the people that took MDMA in these settings, particularly one fellow named Michael Klieg, said, I can make a bunch of money here, <laughs> and more people should have it and um, and he um, helped turn it into ecstasy. This was the the Texas group out of Dallas. Um, the previous MDMA had mostly been made at MIT um, by secret at night chemists um, you know, and they had fueled a lot of this underground um, it was kept underground i say underground, even though it was legal because this was again during a time of the drug war, and if the information about it became public, then it would have been criminalized. One of the things that I had to do for Stan as part of my Esalen Works scholar was to go through all of his papers and organize them. So he had boxes and boxes of papers that he'd collected. And so from that, I just got a lot of interesting articles, including some of his own personal session accounts. One in particular that he did with um, Walter Pankey, where they were wired up, he was wired up to an EEG and other sensors, and they were trying to do ESP research. Um, but this process of being at Esalen and, and being in this environment and then starting to get a little hint of uh, Brother David Steindelrost, who was from the Kamal Monastery nearby, and he was one of the teachers. And, and then once I came back, from um, Esalen back to school and I started working on my um, curriculum and all the different classes, I started realizing that, you know, MDMA was doomed as a therapy drug, as a legal therapy drug, in the sense that it was Adam, but it was just starting to be sold as ecstasy as well. And that that was attracting public attention. And that was during Nancy Reagan, just say no, and the escalation of the drug war. So I, I started thinking about getting more politically involved, in trying to protect um, MDMA, I felt like I learned about LSD in seventy two after the backlash, and now I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash. No, at this moment, had it been outlawed yet? No, no, it hadn't. It was, it was just, it was clear it was going to be doomed. And so this was a rare opportunity. I ended up writing a letter to Robert Mueller, who was the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, Robert Mueller, actually, is kind of the way it's pretty. Sorry. Um, And so he was a French resistance fighter, and he was like the mystic at the UN. And his book was called um, New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And so I ended up writing him a letter about how he says that this spiritual experience is so crucial, this global spirituality, because a lot of the... United Nations is to mediate conflicts between nations, but a lot of them are religious based and we need to find a way for religious fundamentalists not to hate each other and kill each other. And this global spirituality is it. But he didn't say anything about psychedelics. So I wrote to him about the Good Friday experiment and about MDMA. And and to my shock, he wrote me back just the way Stan had written me back too. And then I shared my letter to him with uh, Debbie Harlow, this woman that had introduced me to MDMA. And Somehow it got to Laura Huxley, and so Laura was involved with Dick Price and the early meetings that were taking place here at Esalen to sort of the revival of the psychedelic underground. Laura Huxley was Aldous Huxley's widow. Yeah, 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 and so um, and she'd wrote this book called "This Timeless Moment" that I'd recommend for anybody about all this his last days, and she injected him with LSD, and they were working on this. Beautiful, beautiful article, his final article of his life that was supposed to be about Shakespeare and turned into Shakespeare and death, and it 's about our purpose in life and our businesses to wake up it 's a beautiful, beautiful book, um, but she ended up um seeing this and and being impressed that robert Mueller had had Mueller, i mean had written back, and that we were you know I was trying to do this political work, so I got invited now. In 83, to the, some of the meetings that were starting to take place that Dick was organizing to protect MDMA and to try to figure out how to um, use this brief interim period before it was criminalized to introduce it to all sorts of people. I came back again in um, early 1984 where Stan and Christina had a, another month-long workshop that was called the Spiritual Emergence Network. So it was how to help people having difficult experiences, not necessarily with psychedelics, but kind of different breakdowns of their worldview. And that month was very profound. It was it was getting more and more into learning how to be a therapist. Um, and then once I um, came home from that, I was only home for four or five days. And a friend of mine called me and I had previously sold him MDMA. He had done it with a girlfriend that I'd never met. And during their MDMA experience together, prior rape and violent assault came to the surface in her and she felt like she couldn't manage it. And so she checked herself into a mental institution to protect herself. And after four or five days or whatever, they stabilized her, and then she was released. But she was released with the same old prescription drugs that had never really helped her before. So she was even more suicidal when she got out than when she went in. And my friend called me and said, can you help her? And I was like, I'm not qualified. I'm just learning. I've never worked with a PTSD patient before. But... At the same time, I felt responsible because I'd sold them the MDMA and also conventional psychiatry had done everything they could for her. So it didn't seem like there was other opportunities for her. I think that was one of the key turning points and having been here at Esalen for that month was absolutely crucial in helping me make this decision that I would at least call her and talk to her. And during our conversation, I said, "Um, if you promise not to commit suicide when you're working with me, I'm willing to work with you. And so she came down and I got some women friends and we created the safe context for her for about a month. And during that time, we did an MDMA experience and then an LSD-MDMA combination. And that actually helped her get over her PTSD. So that was the first time that I ever worked with a PTSD patient. In the summer of 84 is when the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA, and so we had prepared. Um, Andy Weil had gone to college with a fellow that was a lawyer with a big DC law firm, and Andy put him in touch with Sasha, and they conversed. And this lawyer, Rick Cotton, said that his firm would take the case pro bono. So we had big DC law firm representing us, and I ran around and got different people to sign on this appeal, and then we went to uh, I went to Washington and filed for the lawsuit. And then once that delayed the DEA from criminalizing MDMA for almost a year, um, then we kept having a series of more meetings here at Eslin in which we would be bringing people who could be very influential, who were skeptical, who, along with some of the key therapists. So uh, somewhat similar to the Soviet American exchange program that was so tremendous here at Esalen. And so we just had this whole sequence of meetings, and then it got to be um, that we were winning in the court of public opinion in the media. So Brother David steinler was willing to speak to the first media article, the first major media article ever about MDMA was in early 1985, and it was Newsweek. And he said, a monk spends his entire life trying to develop the awakened attitude that you can get from MDMA. And that was like one of the early paragraphs of this article. And then uh, shortly after that, there was an article in the Washington Post with Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And he said, uh, MDMA is a delight like the Sabbath. And so he compared MDMA to the Sabbath. So we're. we're doing good. It was really good. People were. It wasn't, you know, here's this hedonistic young person taking. MD made a party. This was like serious mystics. And it it was fantastic. And then we were also winning in the court. We had all these witnesses. We had the safety study. We had all this kind of stuff to try to protect therapeutic use. So the DEA freaked out. And then they um, emergency scheduled MDMA in the summer of 85. What then happened was um, regulatory agencies had been blocking psychedelic research since the late 60s. Um, when MDMA was criminalized in 85 on this emergency basis, um, it was clear to me that the DEA um, was going to block the therapeutic use of MDMA and criminalize it no matter what we did. Eventually, in 86, the judge said that we won the case. The DEA administrative law judge said it should be illegal for recreational use, but legal for therapeutic use. But the administrative law judges only make recommendations to the head of the agency. So the head of the DEA said, I reject the recommendation. It was clear then that they were going to do whatever they could to block it. We, we won in the, the appeals courts twice. It took the third time for the DEA to figure out how to satisfy the court to block MDMA's therapeutic use.
0: I guess it might be useful, just in case there's someone who's listening to this uh, interview who has sort of the more the cynical perspective. <laughs> I'm wondering, um, good, good, point. why does MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, why is it more effective for some than just regular therapy? Yeah. Um, well, in the therapeutic community,
1: they talk about, um, particularly for PTSD, that there's this optimal zone of arousal. And that people who are hyper vigilant, who are constantly triggered, are above this zone. They're too aroused. That everything triggers them. Every sound reminds them of of a trauma or the war or a hospitalization, whatever their trauma was that they're, they're so anxious, they can't process their fear or their, their feelings that they can't bring back the memories. Every time they remember it, They, they veer away because it's so painful. Then there's this group that's under aroused. So that one way that you can sort of cope with powerful emotions is to become sort of dead, tranquilized, and, you know, try not to react to anything. So the idea, first off, is that MDMA brings people into this optimal zone of arousal. And the reason that they do, that it does that is that if you were to design a drug for PTSD, MDMA would be it. So MDMA um, acts in some ways the opposite of PTSD. So people who have PTSD have brains that are different than normal people. They have a hyperactive fear processing part of their brain, which is the amygdala. They, they don't think as logically, so they have reduction of activity overall in their prefrontal cortex. And there's a reduction of activity in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is where we kind of process memories for long-term storage. So MDMA does the opposite. MDMA um, reduces activity in the amygdala so that you can take in... Uh, powerful emotions that normally would be very frightening, but you can process it because you don't react as much with fear. MDMA increases the activity in the prefrontal cortex. So you can logically discriminate between, you know, why is that trigger that person that, you know, somebody attacked me in a red hat. So does that mean that everybody in a red hat is a trigger? Well, you start separating that out. And then MDMA increases activity between the amygdala and the hippocampus so that you can take these memories and process them. There's a paper coming out in Nature, which is the most um, uh, respected scientific journal in the world, uh, next week, actually this week while we're here at Eslin, There's a paper coming out from neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins about how MDMA in mice um, opens up what they call a critical period for social reward learning. And what these critical periods mean is that your brain is particularly responsive to certain kind of learnings, and then your brain kind of shuts down so we know how about young people can learn language easier than older people there there's so through the m d m a stimulation of oxytocin, it opens up this critical period in social reward learning so that there's no neuro- neurogenesis there's new neural pathways that are built, old pathways can die out a little bit like the fear based pathways so For people who have these powerful traumatic memories who are unable to work with them in therapy because it's either too triggering or they're so shut down that nothing will happen, MDMA enables them to make it so that the therapy can be effective. I think we would all acknowledge that there's a large number of people for whom the currently available psychotherapies and pharmacotherapies don't help. Or help only a little or not enough. Right now, the U.S. Veterans Administration, there's about a million veterans that are receiving disability payments for PTSD. And there's about 8 to 10 million people in America that have PTSD. Way more from sexual assault and um, accidents, natural disasters, operations, all different causes than just war, but it's the veterans that get most of the attention, but there's way more people that have PTSD from other causes. Even prolonged grief is a form of of PTSD. And so what we've um, been able to show to skeptics, first off is that there is a problem out there. And then we may have these theories of why MDMA works. And a lot of these are pretty well-founded theories, but the real Data is from outcome research. Do people actually seem to get better? Yeah. And they do. But in 86 is when I started MAPS. So I realized that all other avenues were blocked. The only way to bring MDMA back was uh, through science, through medicine, through the FDA. And that our culture... While it's, you know, in the midst of a drug war, we're, you know, a very drug-oriented culture with
0: medicines and drugs everywhere, but they're pharmaceuticalized. MDMA, was MDMA the centerpiece of MAPS, or were were you hoping for it to be, you know, psilocybin could could be also under that umbrella? Yeah, I I was hoping that it would be psychedelics in general,
1: but for strategic reasons, um, I realized that... um, that MDMA was the most gentle of all the psychedelics. And one of the other things that we believe is that training therapists to work with this drug or to work with psychedelics, that therapists are more effective if they've done the drug themselves. It's not generally true in psychiatry that um, psychiatrists take the drugs they give to people. You know, Psychiatrists don't think, oh, I need to get electroshock therapy to see what it's like, or I need to take this antipsychotic drug. But that's where the drug is the medicine. In this case, with psychedelics, it's the therapy that's the real healing property. It's the context that the drug is used in, and it's the addition of the, the psychedelic. So we feel that therapists would be more effective if they've had experience themselves with the drug. And so to bring psychedelics into psychiatry and psychotherapists' communities, MDMA, I think there's a less resistance for people to take it themselves because it is more gentle. So MAPS was essentially started as um broad based. I, I had learned too that I'd had a nonprofit that I'd started with Debbie Harlow and a woman, Elise Agar, that was called Earth Metabolic Design Lab, which I'd started in 84 to, to gather all the people that we were meeting with at Esalen and the psychedelic community to use that as the nonprofit vehicle to sue the DEA. And I learned from that, that it's important when you develop a nonprofit to try to make your mission statement as broad as possible, because who knows what directions you're going to want to go to in the future. So, you know, MAPS is for all psychedelics, for all purposes, spiritual, psych- scientific, psychic research, you know, so I made it made it very broad, but our, for strategic reasons, we focused on MDMA. And then we had to pick a patient population that would be most likely to benefit from it for whom there was a lot of general cultural appreciation for the patients. Yes. So it was really important to pick socially desirable people that we want to help. Plus there had to be a disease where, um, the modern, the pharmaceutical medicines didn't work all that well, where they worked for some, but left a large number of treatment resistant people. Plus in 84, I had worked with someone with PTSD and saw that it had helped. Um, on the other hand, there was all this concern about MDMA neurotoxicity and this idea that one dose permanent brain damage, functional consequences, and it should never be even researched. We should be banned. That was what the NIDA funded researchers were saying. So we initially thought the other kind of group that people are sympathetic with are people that are dying. that's going to be all of us. And we're all more scared of dying than of drugs. And so from, 86, when MAPS was started, we had a series of different protocols that were submitted to the FDA from Harvard, from UC San Francisco, they were all rejected. And then in 87, I graduated from new college with a bachelor's. And what I'd learned then is that if you talk about transpersonal psychology as your focus, that that trains you perfectly to study and be a psychedelic psychotherapist. So it was transpersonal psychology and psychedelic psychotherapy became my major. And I tried to get into a clinical psych PhD program to learn how to do psychotherapy outcome research, but nobody would let me in. And it was at a time where psychedelic research was still blocked. And so what happened was that since 1972 to 1987, 15 years of my life had been all focused on trying to become a psychedelic therapist and to move forward into that and work on this clinical psych PhD. But since nobody would let me in, I was like, "This whole road is blocked." And so I decided to go home and think about it and get stoned. And so under the influence of marijuana, which I use a lot for um, when I'm in stuck in a box trying to be creative about how to. You know, what are your assumptions that keep you trapped or what what ways can you expand this or vary that? So under the influence of marijuana, I had this realization that there's a pattern in my life that I want too much too soon. Mm. I'm kind of ahead of my time or I want relationships to be faster than they are. I said, okay, but here is another example. I want too much too soon. I want to study psychedelics, but the politics is in the way of the science. So then I have to study the politics. And so I came out with this new thing. And then I thought, oh, well, how am I going to study the politics? And I remembered there was one article in Harper's Magazine. A bunch of people were interviewed and uh, drug policy experts. And one of them was talking about our lawsuit against the DEA. And it turned out he was a professor at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government, which I had previously never even heard of. So I thought, okay, where would I have the ability to make an impact? And I thought, the Kennedy School of Government. So I called this guy up. His name was Mark Lyman. And I said, would you be my mentor? I need to study politics. And I have no background, really. I only had one class that was anything to do with public policy, and it was suing the DEA. I got credit for suing the DEA. Um, And then uh, Mark was great. And he said, yeah, he'd help me uh, be my mentor if I could get in. So in 88, I started... Um, at Harvard, at the Kennedy School, of government. So, at the Kennedy School, there was a program that you could apply for from the White House Office of Personnel Management to be a um, presidential management intern. It's it's for people that want um, careers in the federal government, and it's a two year program. and They take people. Uh, it's a very competitive thing, and they take people from all over um, masters programs and you have like a cohort that you go with. And the cohort is in all the different agencies of the federal government. So I got—I managed to get that. That was at the time, you have to write an essay about a policy issue. And at that time, the Native American church had a Supreme Court case about religious freedom for peyote. And so I could write about that. So I'm writing about a U.S. Supreme Court case, but it happens to be about psychedelics. So I got selected for that. And I tried very hard to get a job at the FDA, the group that is regulating psychedelics. And, and unbeknownst to me, in 1990, the team at the FDA that regulated psychedelics shifted from one group to the other. The group that had blocked it for about 20 plus years to a new group that was willing to open the research. Wow. And a lot of my dissertation was on why this happened. Later, I tried to figure out why this happened. But my application ended, with this, ended up with this group and they said, yeah, they wanted to hire me and teach me how the FDA works. I thought, this is fantastic. It took like six months of interviews with every higher up. I got to the number two person, or the the person at the FDA in charge of all drug research. One person right underneath the commissioner. You know, there's some that do food, some that do devices, some do drugs. So this was the guy in charge of all drugs, and he decided he would hire me. And at the last minute, the DEA said that they would refuse to work with me. So I I couldn't get a job at the FDA. And then I said, okay, I, I need to go and get my PhD and get more credibility. So that's... Started So in 91, I got into the PhD program, and then I took um, a bunch of years off to try to build up maps and build up the
0: research. Your patience is legendary.
1: Well, it's um, 2021, the end of 2021 is when we hope FDA will approve MDMA for PTSD. It looks to me like it'll take me 50 years uh, to become a psychedelic therapist. From 1986 to 1992, FDA rejected everything that we were trying to do. However, in 1990, Rick Strassman got permission to do a study with with DMT. But it was a negatively focused study. DMT might cause schizophrenia. Maybe it's uh, a bad thing. Maybe our brain has DMT, but it goes haywire, and that's why we get these negative things. And so he got permission for that as a scientific study. But we were coming to the FDA saying, we want to make this drug into a medicine. And so in 1992, they had an um, advisory committee meeting, and the FDA said, yes, we will open the door to psychedelic research. The FDA said that what we're going to do is say that psychedelics are, and marijuana will be subject to the same exact conditions that any other drug by any other pharmaceutical company has to, will hold them to. Which means that we had to start with phase one safety studies, even though we knew so much from all this use already that had taken place. So in 2016, November 29th, we had our end of phase two meeting with FDA. And they said, yes, we could go to phase three, which was tremendous. And then we went through a seven month process called special protocol assessment, where you negotiate with FDA about every aspect of your protocol design. And we reached agreement, we have an agreement letter. And so that means they've signed off on our design. And if we get statistically significant evidence of efficacy and no new safety problems come and we have good support at the advisory committee meeting, <laughs> we will uh, be approved as a medicine. So it was, it was tremendous. Um, yeah. And um, then FDA gave us breakthrough therapy designation, which is even more public. It's very important. It shortens the timelines. And so what we've then done is we've raised uh, $28 million, all in donations for phase three. From all different sources, some of the people here in this room and and, um, other people, we've raised this money. So we are now embarking on what looks like will be about a $33 million experiment. And we're going to spend all this money in the next three years. At this stage, we have now trained about uh, over 80 new therapists. We work with male-female co-therapy teams. Um, And the last thing that these therapists do is they work with one patient under supervision. And then we give them feedback, open label. And then once we decide they're ready, then they can move towards actually working with, um, in the blinded study, in the controlled study. And the results from our phase two are that chronic, on average, severe treatment-resistant PTSD. We felt we had to work with the hardest cases. Roughly um, 23% of them no longer have PTSD at the end of two months after their last MDMA session if they just had the, the therapy without active MDMA. So for treatment-resistant, severe, chronic PTSD patients, to get 23% of them to no longer have PTSD, and this is after a three and a half month process where they get uh, three day-long MDMA sessions each eight hours and then 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. Three for preparation before the first MDMA and three for integration after each MDMA. So 23% no longer had PTSD, which is great. And it shows that our therapists were really working, even though they know people weren't getting the full dose of MDMA. When you add MDMA, it more than doubles to 56%, no longer have PTSD. And what the, what's even more important is, um, is this um, a psychedelic afterglow? Is this fading? Does this last? And so at the 12-month follow-up, what we showed is that two-thirds no longer had PTSD. And of the one-third that still had PTSD, a lot of them had clinically significant reductions of symptoms, even though they still had a diagnosis. Roughly 35 people or so that we've uh, enrolled in the new open label to train the new therapists. Um, The results there are even better. Around 80% no longer have PTSD. So it's incredible. It's the combination of the, uh, the drug bringing people into the optimal arousal zone, as Ben said, and also the the loving support that the therapists provide in that context. So we're also going to be moving to Europe. And we've got bunches of people that we're training in Europe. We have to do a bunch more fundraising for Europe. And we're working with all the leading PTSD researchers for the VA uh, with their non-drug methods of prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, cognitive behavior therapy. So we're actually paying to educate the VA Therapists to blend MDMA with their methods. We're saying we've got a method developed by Stan developed from LSD therapy, but it might not be the best method Um, We're open to exploring and and we want to teach and so if the VA was On their game they would be paying for this of course, but they're not so we are Um, The other big thing that we're trying to do is group therapy So we just received a half a million dollar grant to do a group therapy study that we'll probably do at UCSF because Um, All the studies that the VA have done shows that individual therapy works better than group therapy for severe PTSD. But if group therapy is 75% as effective, but only 50% of the cost, maybe it's worth it. There's over a million vets that have disability for PTSD that are being paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion a year on average. I mean, not on average, but cumulatively. Enormous cost. So we're hoping that there will eventually be this transition from the VA referring people to us, but we will be exploring group therapy as well. We've done studies with autistic adults with social anxiety, uh, people with life-threatening illnesses scared of dying, Ben's work with uh, alcoholics, and we're working on now a protocol for eating disorders, MDMA for eating disorders.
0: Let me ask you this, if if, if it's 2021 and... phase three of the clinical trials has gone through and and whatnot, and it's legal. Does a person need to suffer from PTSD in order to engage in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy? No. Um,
1: Once a drug is approved as a medicine, doctors can prescribe it what's called off-label. And so there are problems when you prescribe it off-label. The label is what it's approved for. So off-label means you're using it for something it's not approved for. So there's two basic challenges there. One is insurance may cover what the label is for, but they're not going to cover something off-label. And then the other thing is you have to be careful about uh, medical malpractice because you're doing something that hasn't been proven. And so we've learned that the uh, legal defense against malpractice is you have to have support of a significant minority of your peers. And so I think initially it will be um, primarily PTSD patients because of insurance coverage, and also what we're doing with maps is that we've not just trying to pioneer a new approach towards mental illness, psychedelic psych- psychotherapy, combination of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, but we're also trying to pioneer a new way of selling drugs. What we've done is MAPS has created the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. So that's a modification of capitalism. There's several thousands of these public benefit corporations where legally what you do is you maximize public benefit rather than profit. So if you happen to have a, a normal company and minority shareholders think that the management is not managing maximizing profits, they can try to get majority control and throw them out of business. And so that can't happen with the benefit corp. So what we're going to try to do is make money from the sale of MDMA, use it for the uh, mission of maps. And what that means initially is to expand the number of indications that MDMA is good for. Um, social anxiety, eating disorders, uh, fear of death, couples therapy. Do you need
0: to create studies for each of
1: these? Yes, yes. Every every single new indication has to be a separate argument to the FDA, but the thing that you don't have to keep doing is the safety studies or the demonstration that you have medical-grade MDMA. So that's costing us uh, probably $7 million to, to demonstrate that we have medical-grade MDMA, which is ironic because in 1985 – through the meetings here at Esalen, uh, it was clear, you know, during the early uh, days of this lawsuit um, and also the emergency scheduling, that that we wanted to do research. That we needed. To, it was here at conferences in '85 that the idea for maps came up. So it was an Esalen-generated idea, and so Dave Nichols was here, and so I asked Dave if he could make um, a kilogram of MDMA for Earth Metabolic Design Lab. Um, And he said, yes. And he had the DEA licenses. And so we paid him $4,000 to make a kilogram. He had a better yield than he thought, like a kilogram and a half. And we're still using that MDMA today. So that is, um, right now, that's 34-year-old MDMA. It's incredibly stable of a molecule. He made it incredibly pure. But we're having to replace it with, um, MDMA. That's no purer than what Dave made for $4,000 in, uh, you know, with academics, with students working for free. Um, but you have to pressure test everything. You have to see whatever could go wrong. You have to do all sorts of stability studies. So even though we have 34 year old MDMA, we're spending enormous amounts of money on stability studies, with the new batch and then you have to do stability studies of it in the capsules and then each new capsule size you have to do stability studies and analytical methods validation and so and then you have to uh, manufacture commercial quantities of it and so it's going to cost us roughly seven million dollars just to get the MDMA to the point where the FDA says you've got a medical drug here and you've got a process to manufacture it where you know everything that could go wrong and you also have a process to encapsulate it and you know the stability of it so that doesn't have to be repeated for new indications of MDMA.
0: You mentioned eating disorders also. Yeah. Have yeah. you done any sort of studies or experiments with, uh, with MDMA as it's psychotherapy or eating disorders? No,
1: we, we have new donors that are just saying that they want to support that. Uh-huh. And so we're in the protocol development phase. This would be um, studies that will take place um, in um, Toronto, Vancouver, Denver, and Santa Cruz. So... Because phase three for MDMA for PTSD is so expensive, we've raised $28 million for that from donors. In the history of MAPS, from 33 years, we've raised over $70 million in donations or multi-year pledges. We need around another $6 million for MDMA to make it through the FDA to buy a pile of MDMA, um, 15 kilos plus more. Um, but then we also need around... Um, Nine million to make MDMA into medicine in Europe for PTSD. So because of that, we've really focused on just doing work with MDMA for PTSD uh, other than a few minor things. So we've not really done eating disorders until um, the funder showed up and said, I just want to support that because they have a daughter that has eating disorders. But we have worked with people with eating disorders in the past. So I think a good way to think about it is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can be helpful for whatever psychotherapy can be helpful for, Yeah, because really you're just assisting. And it's somewhat true for psilocybin as well. So, you know, or LSD-assisted psychotherapy. It has a wide range of uses. Um, I mean, in general, those uses have been focused on uh, helping people who are facing death or helping alcoholics or heroin addicts. Um, And I think uh, Bill W., who started AA, you know, did LSD and thought it was really useful. He did it in the 50s and thought it could be very helpful for AA. So I I think that there's um, a bit of a wider range of uses for MDMA than for LSD or psilocybin. Mm. And the reason, I think, is because um, for many people, the psilocybin or LSD is too challenging, that ego dissolution. And I think in the future, people will start with MDMA yeah. For therapy, and then they may move to these other substances because there's there's different kinds of learnings you get from the different kind of psychedelics, and so I think MDMA is the doorway into the culture, and it's also going to be the doorway into um, the whole field of psychedelic medicine and the psychedelic clinics that we're starting to talk about will be eventually. Right now, there's like fourteen thousand five hundred drug abuse treatment clinics in the United States. There's six thousand Pilates and yoga centers, and so. There's, um, I think, about 6,000 hospice centers. So all of these places, not so much yoga and Pilates, but hospice centers, drug abuse treatment centers, could have a psychedelic therapist attached to them. So we will eventually have thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics, and the people will become cross-trained. while I'm strategically focusing on MDMA, it's about psychedelic medicine in general, that what we're trying to do is bring that forth. We, we have to make it so that it's just not accessible to only those people who can afford to pay for it on their own for self-pay, that it has to be covered by insurance. Because a lot of times those people that are most traumatized have the least resources to pay for their treatment. So we're already working with healthcare. Um, economists, we're incorporating a lot of healthcare utilization measures in our studies to track over time, because it's well known that PTSD patients, because of the stress of PTSD, have a whole host of other physical illnesses, and they have more panic reactions, they go to the emergency room more, they commit attempt suicide more, so the cost of untreated PTSD is tremendous, and so we have to be able to quantify that and show that to insurance companies. So I'd say that that, that's our key um, aspect for equity. The other thing I'll say right now is that we have various donors who are talking about creating a scholarship fund for paying for um, expanded access for people who couldn't otherwise pay for it. So just as a small example, one of the women that was in our uh, study in Charleston gave us um, $100,000 to pay for the treatment of uh, people in North Carolina and South Carolina to go through expanded access. And then we've had another, um, the the family that makes the DISH satellite networks, they've donated $100,000 to subsidize the training of therapists, and also $40,000 to treat four vets at our Fort Collins site. So we're hoping to get a larger sum of that. Because the expanded access, um, until we get it approved by the FDA, insurance isn't going to, insurance might pay for some of the non-drug meetings, but not for the day-long sessions. and so when we, well, for example, there was just a drug approved for postpartum depression. I don't know if, if you guys noticed that, but it was front page of the New York Times a couple days ago. A new drug has been approved for postpartum depression. It requires an infusion for like 48 or 60 hours, something like that. And it's, uh, but it's 80% effective or something like that, but it costs $30,000. And the, the, it lasts at least a month. <laughs> All right, so when we think about the cost of MDMA therapy, so what our model is for three sessions, it's 42 hours of therapy, therapy time with two therapists. So another thing that we're negotiating right now with FDA is what are the criteria, what are the qualifications of these two therapists? And so the FDA said that they'll go with our model, which is that one of them has to be licensed as a therapist and the other doesn't have to be licensed. They would be a student working for getting hours to qualify to be a therapist, but they'd be working at a lower rate. And so the FDA said you could choose that or you could choose this other thing, which is, but you don't have to choose it, but it's what we're thinking might be our minimum requirements, which is one of the people has to have either an MD or a PhD, and the other has to have at least a BA and has to have mental health training. So we are developing our reasons why that's inappropriate and unduly expensive and also PhD psychologists often do research as well as treatment. So they might not even be as experienced as masters level therapists that just do therapy all the time. So there's no logical reason for that. But I think it's how do we um, persuade the regulatory agencies and then how do we persuade insurance companies to cover. So we're arguing against even requiring a BA of the person that's the second person and trying to say that our training program is all the mental health training that they need and that they'll be working under supervision of the other person that does have the license and that they don't need an MD or a PhD. So I think that we're assuming somewhere $15,000 or so, $15,000, $20,000 might be for this course of three sessions, depending on where the people are, how expensive their rent is, how much they're charging per hour, stuff like that. So from a long-term perspective, that kind of an intervention is really inexpensive if you help people not have PTSD for decades and decades. And, And the big problem here in America compared to Europe is that in America, the people that pay for the medical treatments are usually not the same that pay for disability if they don't work. But in national healthcare systems, they pay for both sides. So right now, the VA, uh, the last time they put out the numbers was uh, 2005. About 2004, it was 20000 a year on average for people that had a disability for PTSD. So one year, and these are mostly young people who are going to be around for decades, so our treatment for them costs less than one year of disability, and they could have 30, 40 years of disability. So I think we can make that economic case, and therapists shouldn't have to work for free. You should be able to you know, make a living at it as well.
0: Let's talk just for a second about this moment of time. Uh, you know, uh, we yeah. have this big conference here. We have an yeah. incredible group of people. Yeah. Why is it happening now, and what is it like for you to be inside this moment when psychedelic medicine and, and psychedelics in general are mainstreaming and gaining immense popularity?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's tremendously exciting, but I, I, I have to um, constantly um, caution other people and myself to realize that the hardest part is still ahead. Meaning that phase three, the expansion to phase three, both for MDMA and for psilocybin, it's not easy. And there are a lot of problems and a lot of drugs fail in phase three. Um, I just was in New York with a company called Tonics Pharmaceuticals. They're the only other company that the FDA has declared their drug a breakthrough therapy for PTSD. And their drug failed in phase three and they spent $150 million. So, you know, someone earlier t- yesterday was like, why don't you write a book? And I'm like, "We're you know, there's too much that we need to do that's too delicate right now for us to start celebrating and writing about what we've accomplished. So on the one hand, I think it's tremendously uh, gratifying to see the cultural change, to see people that years ago would not have anything to do with this, or thought this was too scary, then now want to be part of it. So I do see a cultural openness, but I've been through two backlashes now in my life. First was 72 when I woke up to LSD after the backlash, and then 82 when I learned about MDMA and knew that the backlash was coming, and then it came just a few years later. The culture has matured in these 50 years in a lot of different ways. And I just spoke a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco at Wisdom 2.0, which is a conference bringing together sort of technology and mindfulness. This is the 10th anniversary of their conference. And this was the first one where psychedelics were in a very prominent way. And it's because they feel comfortable that mindfulness and meditation have become mainstream enough that they don't have to worry that if they start talking about psychedelics, that it's going to hurt their core message. So also um, when... Psychedelics came out in the '50s and '60s, and we started talking about death, rebirth process. People didn't talk about death. Um, the first hospice in the United States was until 1974, and now there's, as I said, around 6,000 of them. So, the culture has really integrated spirituality in the sense of mindfulness and meditation. It's integrated death in different ways. Birth wasn't really um, the, the way it is now. Women were tranquilized; men were not allowed in the delivery room, and that 's changed now we have birthing centers so so I think the raw power of life, death and birth and spirituality have been integrated to a large extent. The other part of it is that through our alliance with trying to help PTSD, particularly in veterans, we have built support among the Republicans and the right wing because of the work for and we've also received a million-dollar pledge from Rebecca Mercer, and the Mercer family was the main funder of Trump and Bannon in the presidential election, 2016. And Rebecca's only Rebecca Mercer's only um, limitation was that we only spend the money on veterans, which we said no problem. There's going to be enough veterans in phase three. Um, We've had positive coverage on Fox News. So I think that overall, we have a very good chance to really fully integrate psychedelics into our culture, but we have to be very careful not to overestimate the benefits not to underestimate the risks, not to say that other approaches that people have been doing are worthless and it's all about psychedelics, and also not to say that you get a unique um, understanding. I think one of the big mistakes of Leary was if you've taken psychedelics, now you're wiser than everybody else because you've got this new view. But really, as Sasha Shogun said, psychedelics don't open you up to psychedelic experience. They open you up to an experience of yourself, Mediated by the psychedelics, and there's other ways for people to have these experiences. Psychedelics are just one way to get to these core human experiences. But one comment just about the patients: yes. what what really um, drove me was, this whole time was fear. Um, fear of the murderous nature of the human heart, fear of the Holocaust, fear of that happening to me again, fear of the Cuban Missile Crisis, fear of my own country. You know, I eventually met uh, Daniel Ellsberg and spent a bunch of time with him. And one of the things he said was that he originally, before he released the Pentagon Papers, he said that he originally thought that we were on the wrong side of the war. And then over time, he realized we were the wrong side. Uh, This fear of if people don't develop this global spirituality if people aren't able to process things that we're anxious about so look at all the people that are denying climate change because and i believe that almost all of them know it's true but they just it's too fearful there's too much change would be required so they suppress that i could think of no better strategy than to try to bring forth psychedelics so masses numbers of people could have these Connection experiences beyond their ego, beyond their self, to realize our common bonds with, bonds with others. So it was that combination of fear, which I turned into an ally. So it wasn't overwhelming that I was depressed, you know, but it was this driving force. And it was this consistent sense that even though it was a long term plan, that trying to bring back psychedelics was the most important thing I could think of to do with my personal time.
0: Thank you. Well, Rick Doblin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for speaking with us. Oh, Sam, it's it's great. And, and I
1: guess I should just say that um, the way that Esalen nurtured Stan Groff after he left Johns Hopkins and the way it nurtured me to be here, that um, Esalen has played an absolutely crucial role in in bringing this cultural transformation forward.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.